Well, this morning, we have the privilege of having one of our members actually bringing the word to us, Larry Litton. I think many of you know Larry. He is actually one of the leaders of our foundation class. If you haven't taken this class, this is a class that Larry and Bob Marlin Uh, present where they actually give an overview of the Bible, and you'll actually walk through the Bible in a year. He's one of the teachers there. He also is very involved in our Stephen ministry, providing specific care uh, to individuals in our church. Larry Litton uh, was a police officer in Dallas for 37 years and retired from the police force there. At the same time, he also did a lot of ministry and even earned a seminary degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. So, Larry, it is so good to have you bring the word for us today. So, Larry, thank you. Good morning. It's great to be here. My goodness. How should we respond when we're blindsided by the unexpected? I got to tell you, when I was typing this in on the computer, I was also working from my phone, and I had a little display there, and I was getting uh, notes from it, and I was, I was transferring it. I'm leaning over my phone like this, and I'm literally typing in the word unexpected, and it rings real loud. I got to jump out of my skin, okay? So today, as you are turning in the word to John chapter 18, I hope, or looking on your devices, I hope that you silence those devices as well because we don't want to startle anybody else out here in the congregation and we don't want to embarrass you. Uh, let me say, if that does occur, we're going to forgive you though, so we'll keep right on going. A lot of things have happened here, haven't they, in 2020. As a matter of fact, a lot of people say, oh, I can't wait until the new year. I hope we're not looking at a false hope there. Uh, it, it is going to be nice. But a lot of good things happened in 2020. They're harder to remember. But we did meet with the unexpected. We had plans, didn't we? I know I had plans, and they got changed drastically. Uh, Probably no one has said it better than Woody Allen. Woody Allen said this, If you want to make God laugh, tell him about your plans. While God probably doesn't really laugh at our plans, God does let us know that he is the planner. He is the one who has the plan that counts, and we need to join him in that plan. So we might ask ourselves how we do that. Well, there have been a lot of conflicting voices out there about what's gone on in 2020, hasn't there? I mean, you've got people who are conspiracy theorists. Uh, They think that the pan and pandemic is what was used to cook up this conspiracy. I don't know. There's other people who think the pan and pandemic means that, well, I'm not going to do much about it because it's all going to pan out in the end. Pan, of course, comes means all. Uh, the demic part of it means is demos from the Greek, and it means all people. Something that has affected all people. The pandemic is not the only thing that has gone on. There's been a lot of controversy throughout this year. We've heard a lot of conflicting voices, as I said a moment ago. But the one voice we need to listen to is that of the Lord. So how in the world do we prepare for the next unexpected? There are lots of unexpected. You think back to 1941, December 7th. We did not expect what happened that day, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. In 2001, we did not expect 9-11 to occur. There are lots of unexpected in our life, and it's important how we respond to the unexpected. And we learn to respond to the unexpected by following Jesus in the familiar and the unfamiliar, and then we're totally blindsided by the unexpected. Today we're going to look at a passage where Jesus is arrested, and I want you to know the disciples there were totally 
blindsided by the unexpected. So we need to prepare for the unexpected by direct communication with God. You may think, how in the world do I have direct communication with God? And we do that certainly, of course, by absorbing his word. Now, let me tell you one way not to absorb his word. We're all familiar with a particular movie. We've seen it, uh, probably most of us, many times. It is actually considered the most viewed movie of all time. Now, I want you to picture with me, you're in some uh, expensive department store, let's say in Walmart, and you see this group of people standing around in their pajamas around the uh, bin there of, of movies. One of them pulls up this movie and says, oh, I just love this movie. And so another person says, what is it about? Like, I don't know. I never watched it. I just love it. And the person says, why would you love a movie about weight loss? And the other, weight loss? What are you talking about? Well, it says right there, it's the Wizard of Ounces, you know. Another person might say, you know, I saw a little clip of this movie one time, and there's a girl squirting oil all over this guy. <laughs> I think that's a misspelling. That's a Wizard of Ooze. Then someone says, well, I wish I knew what it, what was the, it was about. And the other person says, well, why don't we just watch it? Oh, I don't know if I could do that. I have such a reverential awe for it. You know, my parents kept a big copy of this, I mean, of this movie. It sat right there on the coffee table, and we just loved it. And I get such a warm fuzzy when I think about that. And then another person says, well, my uncle, when my uncle went to war, he kept a teeny little copy of this movie in his shirt pocket. That movie stopped the bullet one day. This movie has powers. And another person says, well, I'm kinda, I don't know if I can watch the whole thing, but you know what I do? Sometimes when I get in times of difficulty, I just, I put that movie in, and I just skip over one place over here at random, and I watch a few, just a few seconds of it. And, oh, it just makes me feel so good. And I switch over to another section. Oh, it makes me feel so good. And I do this at different times in my life, and it's just so helpful. And you know what I think? I think the great wizard just wants us all to feel good, you know? And I don't think that's what the Word of God is all about. We would, not, we would not do this with a movie. We would never sit down and think, I wonder what it's about, but never watch it. Here, though, with the Word of God, we need to know what's in it. And the way we do that is to literally absorb it, and not by rubbing it on our skin or anything like that. We read it, okay? We read the Word of God and receive direct communication from Him. Um, in the first verse... Of John chapter 18, we find this dependent clause. It goes like this. When Jesus had spoken these words. We're going to stop right there. Okay? What those words were is John chapter 13 through 17. They were in the upper room at the time of Passover on the evening before Jesus' crucifixion. A lot goes on there. Jesus gives a lot of information to his disciples. He's preparing them for what they don't expect. It's going to be unfamiliar, and they don't even expect it to happen. They think everything's going to happen in a different way, but he prepares them for this. Now, he's been preparing them his entire ministry on earth, but this particular night, he he gives a lot of information, and he allows his disciples to interact with him. One of my favorite interactions comes from the Apostle Thomas, and I just love Thomas. He says some of the coolest things in Scripture. But in, in John chapter 14, Jesus is talking about how he is going to be leaving. Don't let your hearts be troubled. He says, you know where I'm going. You know the way. And Thomas says, wait, time out, Lord. Stop right there. I don't know where you're going. 
He says, if I don't know where you're going, how can I know the way? And all the other disciples are going, wow, I'm so glad he asked that. I didn't want to look dumb, you know. And right now, we should be very glad that he asked that. And you know what Jesus responded with? He says, Thomas, if you want to know the way somewhere, consult your GPS, your gospel positioning system. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, this statement of I am is very important. There, it's kind of funny because if you look this up on the Internet or somewhere, you're going to see there are seven statements, I am statements in John. Well, today we're going to look at the tenth of the seven. Uh, there, are, there are about ten of these statements in the book of John. But this one, I am the way, the truth, and life, is, of course, very important. He also says, I am the light. The, John and the Holy Spirit, throughout the Gospel of John, have wordplay with this dark light. And it's very significant. So here... Uh, when, when Jesus speaks and he says, I am, he's, he is literally saying, I am God. That's the first thing when he says, I am. Whatever else comes, whatever compliment, whatever predicate nominative, whatever predicate adjective is after that, he is first of all stating, I am God, just like the voice from the burning bush did when he spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. As a matter of fact, if you were to look in the Greek Bible, uh, called the Septuagint, and you look at that passage, it would say just that, just like it does in here, in this section of Scripture that we're talking about right now. So, here we are. Jesus has interacted. He's talked, he's talked to his disciples. They are absorbing his word, and then they needed to interact with his word. And when you interact with the word, things happen. How do we interact with the Word? I'll tell you what we do. We, we ruminate on God's Word. We meditate. We let it come up over and over. We ask God questions. It's okay to challenge God. He can take it. So we challenge God. We ask questions. We interact. We ruminate, as it were, on His Word. And we also want to consult some references here. We don't have to know everything. We can actually consult references, and that's totally okay. You need to be careful about some of these references and so it's also good to be in a Bible study of some sort because it's like a checks and balances system in the government, you know. I'm going to, I have these people who love me and hold me accountable, and guess what? I won't get off on some tangent when I refer to a, to a commentary, and then if I have this commentary, it can do the exact opposite. You see what I mean? Do the same thing. It helps us have checks and balances. The Holy Spirit will illuminate Scripture to us, but we have to be careful. Depending on how we're walking with the Lord, we might get off on some tangent somehow. So we have these checks and balances, and that's the way you interact with the Word of God. Also, we need to put the Word of God into practice when we interact with it. And that's how we prepare for the crisis moments. Jesus' disciples had interacted. They were preparing. They were usually in the familiar territory with Jesus, but sometimes they entered the unfamiliar territory. Now, where they're going today, and this is what we're about to read, is the Garden of Gethsemane across the Brook of Kidron, okay, the ravine of Kidron. And these are the words from the book of John, chapter 1, again, after he says, he'd spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of Kidron where there was a garden or an orchard, by the way, 
in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. It was very familiar. Sometimes they'd even camped out there. They knew this area. It's familiar territory. But Jesus is going to allow them to follow his example. He's going to show them some things. It's important to realize that the Garden of Gethsemane, which is identified as Gethsemane in the other Gospels, uh, actually the word Gethsemane means like an oil press because you would actually press olives there to get the oil out. Well, Jesus went into this garden, and this section is left out of the book of John because his purpose is, is a little bit different. So whenever he... Christ is in this garden. He is being pressed. It's a struggle. He's going through a real life struggle, interacting with his father. And he's saying, Lord, if it's possible, please take this cup from me. He doesn't leave it there. He wins that. I mean, he, he, he overcomes that difficulty. But it's not a sin for you and I to struggle. We need to keep that in mind. Jesus himself struggled. And he struggles in the oil press. To get there, he went across the brook of Kidron. And this uh, word kidron means turbid or gloomy or dusky, dark. Okay, remember the word play? It's dark. And darkness is talking about, uh, Jesus said earlier, I mean, excuse me, John says earlier in uh, chapter 1, uh, men love darkness rather than light. He says the darkness, Jesus came into the darkness, the light came into the darkness, but the darkness could not comprehend it. It's dark. The world is dark. And right now, Jesus is going through the darkness, the darkest point of his life. He's entering his agony, his anguish, pre-crucifixion, the struggle. But then he comes out of it. And when he does, he is met by Judas. So we are to interact with the Word. And what this does, if we follow Jesus in the familiar, what it does, it builds a muscle memory. We repeat these actions of following Christ, whatever it is, being obedient to his word. When we do that, we build a muscle memory. So when we get into tough times, we can kind of move automatically. And that's very important. Not only does it build muscle memory, but it builds reciprocal credibility. And that is we develop faith in God, and then we build up a credibility in God's eyes. And so that's what the disciples are doing here as they're following Christ's lead. Now they're following him into the familiar. They've exercised their faith muscles all this time. And now they're going to go move into the unfamiliar. What we need to, to talk about before we get to the unfamiliar is that Jesus is omnipotent and Jesus here is going to ask some questions. There are 37 questions that he asks in the book of John, by the way. And uh, the reason Jesus asked a question is not because he needed to know the answer. He's omniscient. He's God. He knows all these things. He knows what the answers are already, which means he's asking those questions for our benefit. So anytime you see Jesus ask a question, you need to know what that question is. It can have multiple meanings and what the answers are to it. And Jesus is very good about that because he's constantly training his, his disciples in the familiar, in the unfamiliar, and preparing them for the unexpected. So let's look now. Jesus assesses his situation. He does that without having to ask a question. He, he sees something occurring here, and this is in John 18.3. He says this, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, which could be 200 to 600 officers, it's probably just 200 thereabouts, and the Sanhedrin from the chief of priests, come 
there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Did you catch that? Lanterns and torches. Who are they coming to arrest? They're coming to arrest the light of the world with lanterns and, to- and torches. Can you imagine walking out into, into your yard on a hot summer day, noontime, you got a flashlight in your hand, your neighbor says, what are you looking for? Oh, I'm looking for the sun. That's about what this would be like, okay? These people came with lanterns and torches to seek the light of the world. Again, the, John, as John said earlier, the light came into the darkness, and the darkness couldn't even comprehend it. Second Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, Satan himself has blinded the lost. What a sad story. We have to remember, too, though, these lost people, these are the people that Christ died for just as much as he died for you and myself, and we're just as guilty of putting him on, him on the cross as, as they did because our sin put him there. Jesus, knowing all things, John 18, 4. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? Not only did he assess the surroundings, but he asked them the question, Whom do you seek? And that's an important question. It's important for us because hopefully you've answered, you know whom you seek. We seek the Lord. We're not trusting anybody or anything else not only for our salvation, but for our day-to-day walk. Our security in times of crisis, such as a pandemic, rests in the Lord. And I hate to... I want you to know I bleed red, white, and blue. But my security... My hope rests in the Lord and not in the flag. And I don't mean for that to be seditious or treasonous. What I mean is... Ultimately, my trust lies in the Lord because the United States of America may not always be here, but the Lord will be. And I emphasize that so much. My hope is in the Lord. Our hope is in the Lord. So now Jesus asks, who's confronting me? And now he wants to know who or what it is that they needed or desired. And he says, uh, when, he, when he asks this, he does two things, really. He does three, actually. He proclaims Christ to them. Think about that. When he answers the question that they ask, they say this. Uh, They're seeking Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I've arrested hundreds of people in my career. I want you to know that. Hundreds. Literally. And I never drew back. When somebody said who they were, I didn't draw back and fall to the ground. I just want you to know that's not standard operating procedure. I would not consider that a healthy procedure. There are times when I drew back and went behind a tree or something. I just stood behind a tree to take cover. Um, But I never took those actions. Now, Jesus' words are very different in this setting. When he proclaims Christ, he's saying, I am. This is God speaking. His words have power. As a matter of fact, it's hard to separate his words from actions. For us, we need to proclaim Christ with words and actions. Whatever critical moment we're in in our lives, we need to remember we need to proclaim Christ just as he did here. His words have power. And he's the creator of the universe. Of course his words have power. He spoke the universe into existence.
then he asks the question again. He lets him ask the question again. He says, again, in verse 7, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, and I'm going to stop right there. He repeats this again. And it's kind of critical to know this. Why? I, th- I think there's a good reason that he does this. He has presented himself as God to them, and he answered their question at the same time. So let me, let me show you something here, some beans here. You're thinking, boy, there's a guy, uh, he doesn't know beans about this. But the fact of the matter is you would think these are ordinary beans, but what if I tried to convince you that these are magic beans? What would you think of that? What would be the question that you asked me? Would you say, oh, I believe they're magic, but I don't believe they're beans? No, you would say, I believe they're beans, but you're going to have to prove it if you think they're magic. And, and this is, when we think about Christ, we always think the critical part is his deity, okay? And that is important. Of course it's important, but sometimes we forget that he's human also. When he went through the struggles, he went through struggles just like you and I do, but only more intensely because his struggles were more intense. Jesus Christ is 100% of everything that it takes to make God and 100% of everything that it takes to make a human being, a human being, all combined in one being forever. Jesus Christ knows our struggles because he's been through them. Now, it's important, too, because we get hung up on proving that he's God. Not that he needs us to do that. But sometimes we think that's the hard part to believe. But people who would attack Scripture want to say that he never existed at all as a human or whatever. So I'm going to give you a reference here. If you've never had this book, I don't sell these or anything. I have given a lot of them away. And by the way, if you have my copy right now, I would like one back. Uh, here, I want to show you this book right here. This is, this is a book by Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ, where he actually goes through and he speaks of many different people, knowledgeable people, and he walks you through building a case for Christ existed. It is one of the most documented lifetimes in history. The, I mean, the life of Christ is very well documented. And so it's, if, you have, if you know anybody who struggles or if you struggle with this, you don't have to be struggling. It's very informative. This is very reassuring. And I recommend this book. He also has another one called The Case for Faith. I'd recommend that one too. Now we have followed, the disciples have followed Jesus into unfamiliar territory. And they've seen Jesus assess the needs. They've seen him proclaim himself as we should proclaim Christ. But they also see Jesus meeting needs. He meets a bunches of needs here in this time. And the first one he meets, you've got to think of this as a need. When these uh, members of the arresting party come up to arrest him, he asks them, who are you looking for? And then he tells them who he's lo- they're looking for. That was a need they had. And he met it. He also met the need when he provided the opportunity for them to come to Christ. You ever think of that? He provided an opportunity for them to come to him. He spoke. He said, basically saying, I am God. He identified himself as their Savior, basically. And, And I believe some of these people probably came to Christ. I mean, I can't back that up with Scripture or in history. But it's quite possible that they did. We do know that soldiers later on came to Christ. And so it's quite possible they came to him, and he actually presented himself as God. They had the opportunity. He was meeting a need that they didn't even know they had. He interceded on behalf of the disciples. We're going to find that in just a second, the way he does that. He provided an opportunity. He 
healed Malchus, who was the servant of the high priest. Uh, in a few minutes, we're going to read that, that the apostle Peter actually cut off this man's ear. And uh, later on, and, well, excuse me, not later on, but in another account in the book of Luke, Luke tells us that Jesus Christ actually healed the man's ear. Okay, so there's a need. I mean, you may think, well, that's kind of a small need. Uh, not if you're the one with your ear cut off. That's not a small need. That's a big need. Okay, Christ is ministering 100 percent of the time. I don't care if he's lying down to take a nap. I don't care what situation he's in. If it's familiar, if it's unfamiliar, if it's totally unexpected, if he's blindsided, he couldn't be. But we can be blindsided. So we are to meet needs. Yeah, we need to put Christ's teaching into practice in the familiar, the unfamiliar, and the unexpected. One thing we need to do, too, is keep a cool head. If we're following Christ into the unexpected, we need to keep a cool head. In verse 9 and 10, we read this. So if you seek me, let these go their way. And he did that. Because he wanted to fulfill his prayer from John 17. It is critical that if we want to communicate with God, of course, we let him communicate to us and then we pray. We communicate back with God. It's a two-way conversation. Christ had done that. And in that conversation, he says you know, that he did not want to let one slip away. So here he is now. He's interceding for his disciples. But when he does this, this is when everything becomes, this is when the disciples are blindsided. They're hit with it totally unexpected. They're thinking, oh, the moment has come. Either he's going to slip away like he always does, but now it looks like the time has really come. So this is when the kingdom is coming in. Yeehaw! And one of them grabs a, a, a sword and starts to cut off probably the high priest ear who moved out of the way. And conveniently said, ah, take this one, and cuts off his ear. Okay. Now, uh, this, this is not the approach that Jesus had wanted to take. Certainly not the approach that Jesus wanted to take. We have to consider something. And I, I, I guess rather than I say it, I would like you to see what Dr. Con- uh, Thomas Constable says on this. Dr. Constable says that zeal without knowledge is dangerous. When Peter jumped out and took matters into his own hands, he did something very dangerous. Certainly, you can see that. It hurt somebody, didn't he? You might think, well, he's going to thwart the the mission of Christ. Well, we know we can't really do that, but we can cause people to stumble. Can you imagine the Apostle Peter going up to this person, Malchus, Malchus, whose ear he had just cut off, and goes, by the way, did you know that Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? I don't think that's going to go very well, you know. He's going to have trouble ever ministering to this person because of his rash, radical action. Again, zeal without knowledge is dangerous. He didn't have a complete picture of what was going on, and he started to take action anyway. And with that, we can cause people to stumble. Uh, uh, H.A. Ironside says this. How often we are like Peter. How busy we keep the Lord putting on the ears that we have cut off. Wow. Ouch. In more ways than one. How busy we keep Christ. 
putting on ears that we've cut off and how many different ways. Imagine, picture yourself in traffic. Picture yourself with that waitress that was a little too slow. Picture yourself having a conversation with your spouse. Think about some of the things that you say and you just reach up and cut their ears off. Did you know that you can say something to your spouse that they never forget? They cut their ears off to you somewhat for the rest of your life. Unless you do a lot of repair work. And that usually, that always comes from the healing touch of Christ. Fathers, you can do that with your children. Mothers, you can do that with your children. You speak to them and act toward them in such a way they never forget. Instead of, re- instead of seeing you as that loving father, they see you one as one who's out of control and will literally victimize them with your words. On social media, oh my goodness, how many ears. I mean, if it was literal, we couldn't walk around anywhere without stepping on ears that have been cut off. Social media is a great power. We wield a great power like no generation before us with social media. We reach the uttermost parts of the earth, and we can do that for good things. And so many times we see conversations between Christians where they're debating something, even calling people names. We see people who plaster the Internet with poor intentions. We see them plastering the Internet with pictures of themselves in compromising situations. We see people who who pretend they have no responsibility. And those records are permanent. Do you realize that? When I was a kid in the third grade, I wrote a love note to Marlene. I said, I love you. Do you love me? And left blanks for yes or no. And she sent back no and wrote under, I like you. Okay, until the day that was just between me and Marlene, right? Okay, nobody had to know about it. You put something on the Internet, everybody's going to know about it. I knew someone who returned from the mission field. They were so happy. They were so excited about the Lord, so excited about what God was doing in this, in this remote area of the world. And they wrote back and described the conditions, the living conditions, that is, of the people to whom they were ministering and made a statement about it. They had really good intentions. Guess what? Some of the people they were writing about saw it on the Internet because basically they're friends of somebody else. Wow, we wield a big responsibility. And it hurt those people. It caused them to stumble. And at least least cut a portion of their ears off. You know, we need to be careful that we don't cut people's ears off continually. And not only do we need to... um, Well, I'll I'll give you a couple of other quotes here real quick, like, if we can... Um, Next, I want you to see uh, what the, the Apostle James says. Remember, he was, he was present at the time when Peter cut off Malchus' ear. And he says this, Beloved, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Quick to hear, slow to speak. That doesn't mean you have to talk like Gomer Pyle. That means take some time and think about it. Think about this before you say whatever it is. Ambrose Bierce says this. 
He says, speak when you're angry and you'll make the best speech you ever regret. Oh, how true that is. Take a moment. Calm down. Hopefully you prepared for this in the, with the Word of God. So when you get to that moment, you're going to proclaim Christ or exhibit Christ's behavior rather than take out on your own and cut off ears. Lisa Claypas says something a little different. And I want us to catch this because... Because we're so scared to speak, it doesn't relieve us of responsibility. We'd be so afraid that we're out of control, we don't want to give up another responsibility. And she says this, Many times in my life I've regretted the things I've said without thinking, but I've never regretted the things I've said nearly as much as the things I left unspoken. Remember that proclaiming Christ thing? We need to be proclaiming Christ. In unfamiliar situations, in familiar situations, in the unexpected, we still need to proclaim Christ with words and actions. Another way that we, that we, um, another way that we can, can actually speak out and proclaim Christ is when we have a brother or sister who seems to be not walking with the Lord. And that's, this is dangerous territory for any believer because Christ told us don't approach anyone to remove the speck in their eye without removing the log in your own first. But the Apostle James, again, who was here at the time that ears were cut off, he says, pray and pray and pray. In, John, in uh, James 5, pray and pray and pray. And when he gets to verse 18, he says, but man, you see a brother who's stumbling, who's falling, go to him. And you turn that person back through what you say and your actions. Turn that person back from death. Whether that's spiritual death or whether that's an emotional death, we don't know. I don't mean, I don't mean I'm sorry, physical death or emotional death. Some numbness to the word, we don't know. But James says you can turn them back. Words can be so powerful if we use them right. If we follow the example of Christ, stick to the game plan. This is the, the, what Jesus is saying in verse 10. When he, Jesus turns to Peter after he's cut the ear off and Jesus puts the ear back on, he's saying, put the sword in its sheath. The cup which my Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Of course, he's speaking of going to the cross. Remember, he struggled with this himself. This is the second time Peter's kind of gotten in the way of that. He did that one other time, and, and, and Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan, because he was tempting him not to go to the cross. Peter didn't even know he was doing it, but he's tempting him not to go to the cross. And here, Peter is doing something to make everybody around him stumble, taken off on the wrong plan. And Jesus says, Really? You really think I came here and spent this time on earth and then I'm not going to follow through? I'm not going to go to the cross for you? What are we doing? What needs are we need meeting? Let me tell you what this meant. When Christ went to the cross right then, when, he, when, when Christ let his disciples go, he let them to go, first of all, so they could continue the work. He also demonstrated his own competence. And his willingness preserved them and us from danger. Evil, danger, you name it. God can protect us from it, Jesus being God. And then ultimately, he laid down his life for us to pay the penalty for our sins. That's what Jesus did. That was the game plan. What is our game plan? Our game plan is not to, is not to huddle up and hide in fear when the unexpected comes. 
I'm not talking about any, any protective measures you take, by the way. I'm talking about we're not to run. We are to function really the same based on the muscle memory that we've built up, based on the credibility that we have in Christ in our eyes and us in Christ's eyes. We're to do these things. We're to communicate, stay in the Word. We want to be sure we know what the plan is so that we can stick to it. You know, we're sitting here thinking, a lot of people, well, when 2021 comes along, everything's going to be so much better. Folks, that's only a few days away. Do you really think that when on the New Year's Day, when they go raise up the window, throw open the shutters, and go, oh, and... The birds and little furry vermin all come in the house and they change our clothes for us, scrub our showers, clean the whole house. Everything's going to be better. It's 2021. No. My goodness. It can't be the case. We might even meet our spouse charming. Who knows? Uh, I believe we need to be real about this. You know, conditions. We have no guarantee that conditions will ever be perfect except when the Lord is here to rule. We need to be prepared for the end times that are, you guessed it, familiar. When things get unfamiliar and when we're blindsided. We need to remember to be in constant communication. God with us and us with Him through prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much.